Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you like the show, you can support it by checking out our books in addition to those by our guests and guest hosts, or maybe you wouldn't mind reviewing the show on Apple Pods, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also stay up to date with what we're doing by finding us on Instagram or the app formerly known as Twitter, at AutofocusLit. And if you like the show to the point that you'd pay to represent it on a t-shirt, we have one now available for order in our online store at autofocuslit.com books. This is perhaps the best way to support us right now. All right, that's my advertisement. Here's the show. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Coming up very soon, you'll hear me in conversation with Emma Catherine Perry. Emma Catherine Perry is the author of the poetry collection Blocks World, which is out today from Great Place Books. Her poems have appeared in Fence, Nashville Review, Quarterly West, and elsewhere. And just yesterday, in Autofocus's Fall 2023 issue, we released a poem from Block's World called The Sign of the Self, which comes up once during this conversation, in fact. So I encourage you to go read that poem and the rest of the issue after the show at autofocuslit.com slash fall2023. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Emma Catherine Perry. I'm from New Hampshire originally. Same phone number that I've had since I first got <laughs> since I first got a phone at age twenty, a you know, smartphone. But um, I'm actually I live in Nebraska right now, but not for long. So life right now is like Box City. We are moving. Um, so we're living kind of in the, I don't know, in the wreck of life right now, but we are relocating to Idaho, um, in about 10 days. What's bringing you there? So I'll be, I'll be working at the university of Idaho in Moscow, um, as the associate director of their writing center and also teaching, um, composition and creative writing. Were you teaching at Nebraska? No, no. The job I had at Nebraska didn't have any um, any teaching component, and that's something that I really missed. So I'm excited to get back into the classroom, too. Yeah. Are you going to be... So what will you be teaching there, like first year or cre- like creative writing poetry? Yeah. So the first... I think the first year that I'll be in Idaho, I'll definitely be teaching first year writing, um, introduction to college composition, mm-hmm. those those sorts of classes. Um, I think they're looking to revamp their first year writing curriculum in the near future. So I'm excited to to meet students. I think that's a really great way to kind of get a sense of the demographics on campus um, and to, yeah, just get back into talking about writing with students. That's something I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, I, I also teach first year writing <laughs> at yeah, a community yeah. college and I have oh, a, cool. a background in writing centers oh, um, no way. as cool. well. Yeah. Um, so... Have you been to Idaho before? Is this going to be like a huge, huge change for you? 
Yeah. So I have only been one time for the on-campus interview. Um, my partner has never been. So bless his Sagittarian soul. He's up for the adventure. <laughs> we'll just be blasting across the country yet again. <laughs> it's a bit of a habit with us. Um, he also had never been to Nebraska before we moved here. So um, yeah. So, <laughs> And I had never been to Oakland before I moved there with him um, a while ago. So we... Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a feature of our life, new places. Yeah, and you're a poet, and I'm thinking, you know, about my time working in a writing center, and I wonder if your work, spending a lot of time with student writing, um, prepared you to be, like, superhuman with syntax <laughs> in oh. kind of a way, if that makes sense. I'm thinking about your line work and poetry. I'm kind of yeah. jumping ahead. I won't get too detailed right now about it. <laughs> I wonder if you would talk a bit about, you know, how like having to speak with writers who aren't confident writers or very knowledgeable mm -hmm. writers about their work and clarity and sentences and how that's kind of played a role in your life as a poet. Yeah, you know, when um, the more I the more I work with student writers, the more invested I get in ideas about linguistic diversity and linguistic justice Um I think first year writing and writing centers and to a large extent, creative writing classrooms can be these really normative spaces where the correct way of writing or, um, you know, some sort of legible or acceptable way of writing is, you know, the pinnacle of achievement. And we're all trying to just like fit students up into this like tiny little corner, um, but I think one of the things I really enjoy about working with students is that you actually get to encounter <laughs> new ways of thinking, new ways of expressing yourself um, that maybe do something really interesting alongside sort of like normative writing practices or against normative writing practices. They either challenge or nuance. And um, yeah, so I've, I've come to think of of my work with other writers as primarily kind of concerned with um, celebrating and encouraging that linguistic diversity too, because I am I'm, I'm incredibly interested in the writing that happens at the level of the sentence or in, in poetry at the level of the line, the level of syntax. Um, yeah, I think that kind of gets like derided or like you know sort of dismissed as lower order concerns, mm -hmm. you know, or sort of um, more basic than these higher order concerns like organization or idea formation. Um, but actually it's where it happens. That's where writing happens, yeah. right? It happens at the, the level of the punctuation, at the level of the word choice, at the level of the syntax. Um, and a lot of the work that I do with students in the writing center is really like chugging along at that really, really fundamental level of, of um, language. So, yeah, I think there probably is a really, a really important connection there. That's yeah. a good question. Thanks. Um, so you mentioned... Um, you grew up in, um, you grew up in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So yeah. tell me about life growing up there. What were some like formative experiences or interests maybe that led to you becoming a reader and a writer? Um, or if there were interests in other arts too? Yeah. Um, when I was growing up in New Hampshire, I thought, I just thought it was the best place. I really, I was like, why would you live anywhere else? You've got the mountains, you've got the ocean. We do, we've got like an 11 mile sliver of coastline. Um, yeah, I grew up in a really small town. I think there were 800 people there when I was growing up. 
Now I think there are 2,000 people in that town, which is still a really small town, but it's more than twice as many people as there were when I was a kid. Um, yeah, and my my family, two siblings, um, you know, kind of lived in the same house in the middle of this, this tiny town for ooh, like 30 years. It's actually funny, if you look at the Wikipedia page for the town, Newfields, New Hampshire, you can actually see the house I grew up in. Really? Just, there just aren't that many things to photograph in that town. It's not very big. Uh, so, yeah, so we grew up in this this tiny town. We went to um, a region, regional schools. It was a regional school district. So there were six small towns in the area that fed into the same middle school and the same high school. Um, and so sort of a facet of rural life there is like your friends, even when you're a child, might live an hour away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had friends who, you know, lived in these little towns of Brentwood or East Kensington, and they were just <laughs> like, you know, we were both on the bus for like an hour to get to the <laughs> central location where our school was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my my mom was uh, an elementary school educator, and her specialty coming up was early childhood literacy. And um, she ended up being an administrator and an elementary school principal at the end of her career. But for a while, she was um, a fifth grade teacher. And so <laughs> I was actually just telling this story the other night. Half of our the attic in our house was unfinished, like uninsulated, just no, <laughs> no like walls, really, just sort of like the exterior of the house was also the interior. And um, we had really, I mean, it's almost like this, like, lost library for my family now since my parents retired and moved before any of us had kids all of these books that my mother had amassed over a career of literacy education or just well they were donated to the local public library but she had this like fantastic collection of just like this amazing snapshot of all the books that got taught to children in like the northeast region of the united states between 1985 and 2005 it was really this comprehensive sort of collection of, of children's books and young adult books and um, really just a, a child could could get an entire literacy yeah. <laughs> education at least in that in that mode um, just through that that library um, which is now gone but yeah so grew up in a house with a lot of books um, a lot of books a lot of trees a lot of time <laughs> um, that kind of seems like a good recipe for a writer yeah when did you start? putting words down I mean is it a silly question like you were always doing it or was there something that happened or like a time where you just found yourself writing you know I really don't remember the beginning so I think that's probably (laughs) yeah but as as telling as that is I think I remember like early moments of it like in elementary school um you know the first time you like receive recognition for it um which is totally different from like readers and readership right it's just this kind of like academic school thing people are like oh yes emma we see you doing something with language we give you validation yeah i therefore continue doing it publicly (laughs) you know very complicated relationship with school as the as the child of two teachers of course right (laughs) um so when did it become poetry or was it poet i mean was it poetry from the beginning um yeah. Or or what? Yeah. Yeah, it was. It always was. I was really interested as a kid, you know, really obsessed with like, um, like reworking Irish stories. You know, my family's super Irish. Um, yeah, reworking kind of like old mythologies into different sort of verse form. Um, in re- these really sort of again, like thinking about sources of linguistic diversity, um, 
even just like as a child, just misusing these forms. So like just using and abusing everything I came across <laughs> because I didn't understand any context or anything. It was all just sort of like, um, yeah, material that was up for, up for grabs, up for play. Um, but yes, yeah, it was always poetry. It was always kind of like, I don't know, fooling around with, with form and, um, and sound. Yeah. And it just kept going through elementary and middle and high school. And then did you go right into an English major for undergrad or was it something? No, yeah. I tried to stop. Yeah. yeah. I was like, <laughs> enough. You know? Good for you. Good for yeah. Yeah. So I majored in art history. <laughs> Take go. that. No, it was actually like, you know, my poor parents were like, you know, relieved when I changed to art history from like philosophy and creative mm. writing, which I thought I was going to yeah. do. They're probably the only people in the world who were relieved when their <laughs> child went into art history. Well, they could like picture it, you know, they were like, okay, she likes museums. Okay. Mm. This will yeah. be, this makes sense. This, yeah. She has a, a future here. I did not have a future there. It turned out. Mm. I, yeah. So I worked in, um, I did a couple of internships in contemporary art museums in and around college that I very much enjoyed and were really fun and also allowed me to, um, understand that maybe that wasn't the the culture that was going to hold me best, um, or that I that I was going to be a good fit for going forward. Did you um, like almost like after that immediately, or sometime after? Like, I guess my question: like, at what point were you like, I'm going to commit to my writing? no matter what happens, was it a decision yeah. to do more school or was it a decision personally or yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, it was, um, definitely both. So I kept writing, um, you know, after leaving, after leaving also, you know, like a totally unhinged academic maniac in undergrad, I had no certifications or degrees in English at all, but I would take workshops mm -hmm. <laughs> just to kind of give myself deadlines to participate in that community. Also classes were something I understood, um, as a source of community and a source of, of conversation. Um, and so, so I was still writing after school, but also thinking that I was going to, you know, try to pursue, pursue this kind of art world life, um, realized it wasn't for me. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> then I tried like middle school teaching for a while. Um, also, <laughs> to dip no <laughs> like, so I really did try I really mm. did try not to not to not to commit but um but it got me in the end um but yes yeah, so I think that was definitely the desire to give myself an actual chance to um to cultivate this this thing that wasn't going away um and to actually kind of take it seriously and take myself seriously as a writer too uh was really an important sort of like um element or component of the decision to go and, and get an MFA. Hmm. And what was it like starting to publish uh, in like literary magazines and stuff? Was it something that went hand in hand with the MFA or did you do your MFA and then start to worry about it or start to, yeah. What was it like to try to move from personal interest into schooling into, I guess, kind of like you said, like, looking for the external validation, not even yeah. a readership, right? I mean, that's really what it yeah. is in the beginning. Can I get someone, an editor somewhere to just validate me yeah. in this magazine that I don't even know how many people read, but maybe just looks nice yeah. <laughs> or yeah. Yeah, it will make me feel like I should keep going or something like that. Yeah. Or that I'm real. Yeah. You know? I'm a, I exist. Mm -hmm. 
which, you know, I'll have to send a link to this to my therapist. She'll be like, <laughs> Emma, you exist. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I, I didn't publish at all in MFA. Yeah. I, I wasn't there. I wasn't, um, what do I mean by there? I wasn't ready. I didn't understand that part of writing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I still sort of associated it with like a thing you kind of grind away at on your own. Um, you know, when I was teaching middle school, I'd just like go to a coffee shop after work and then work there for a couple hours before going home. And then you kind of present it to your workshop and they tell you, and I, I didn't really have a sense of what happened after that. Um, and yeah, through meeting other folks who were at similar life phases and similar um, at similar points with their writing and seeing how much people knew about literary journals and about being published. Um, all my learning about that came from converse, these like, you know, para-academic conversations, social conversations, community-based learning, um, where in in talking with folks who knew more, whether they came from families that had writers in them or came from um other, you know, other academic or, or community backgrounds where that was, that was better known. Um, but yeah, so I, I didn't try at all in MFA. I also thought I wasn't ready. I thought I wasn't good enough. And, um, I thought that I didn't want to have anything in the world that wasn't really great, really, really immaculate and just like stunning, timeless, just, you know, I, I used to make this joke, like, I think I'm going to peak famous wise 50 years after I die (laughs) and I'm comfortable with that. And I thought I was at the time. And I think I would also, um, I give very different encouragements to students now. (laughs) I'm like, don't do it that way. You know, you are good enough right now. Part of developing as a writer is also developing in relationship with your reader um, or your Mm. readers. Uh, and yeah, so I, I think that approach came out of just a lack of, a lack of knowledge, a lack of awareness about my own process too. How did you get over it? Cause I feel that I yeah. was very similar. I did not publish yeah. in my MFA. Um, and I, I was the same way. Whereas like, if I put something out, it has to be my best foot forward. Like it has to be the best thing that I've done. And so it's like, I think some things I would try to get published anyway, here and there. Yeah. I'm um, hoping. Yeah. <laughs> that I'd be that like, ooh, this one's thing. really good, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think even until recently, I've had to get over that in a way. Yeah. Um, but is there anything that kind of happened for you in your head or externally that helped you just be like, oh, all the art is in just putting the art out? Like, right. I just pick a point or somebody else picks a point where my art starts coming out and then yeah. I just keep evolving. Yeah. You know, I think that's been a really, really recent revelation for me. Um, you know, I think, and that came from then after, after MFA, um, having a really hard time publishing as a writer. Um, I, you know, didn't get my first sort of like national literary journal publication until I was in a PhD program, you know, like seven years after I started my <laughs> MFA program in a full, like, you know. 10, 15 years after I'd started, quote unquote, like taking myself seriously as a writer. And then, you know, so I I didn't try for so long and kind of denied myself that access to that to community on that level. And then when I was like ready to try, it was really, really difficult. And so um, I started and it, 
at the level of the individual poem, also the level of the manuscript too. I, the current book is like the fifth one I've written, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's the, it's the fifth collection. And so, um, there are all these other, other sort of, um, projects that for, for 10 years, we're just not reaching anybody mm-hmm. and we're just not. Um, and I finally sort of came to terms with the fact that I, I wanted them to exist in a way that writing only can when there's a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, then I would send it to friends and sometimes I was asking for feedback and sometimes I was like, I just need you to witness this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I just need you to know that this book existed. Mm. Um, yeah. So that, that was, that's, that was recent. That's yeah. been recent. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's yeah. really amazing how long it took me to figure that one out, but <laughs> we're here now. Yeah. So tell me about going into a PhD. I didn't realize that. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, what, when, when and, <laughs> yeah. and how and, and why and how is that tangled all up in starting to publish and, Maybe eventually this book. I don't know. We'll get right into that. But yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, I entered the PhD program at UGA in 2017. Um, and again, yeah, thinking about this really like complicated relationship between just different modes of public life for a writer, I guess. And like, you know, academia tangled is a, a wonderful word to use to describe my relationship to <laughs> academia. Um, it's definitely, yeah, tentacular, you know, like it keeps kind of like the, the arm of the Kraken from the deep just grabs my ankle every time I think I'm escaping. Um, but yeah, so I, why did I decide to go back to, to grad school? I hated my job Mm. in California Mm -hmm. and I was like, fuck you guys, I'm going back to grad school. (laughs) Um, yeah, so I was working at this middle school in, um, in Berkeley, my partner at a fellowship in, in the Bay area. And, uh, yeah, I was absolutely having a terrible time with it. was like, this mm. is not it. Um, yeah. had started, you know, I had just taken whatever job I could get in California when we moved there. And it was a, um, it was a K through eight admissions director job. And I met a lot of really nice people who also worked in that profession. And I also absolutely abhorred rating four year olds on their potential to succeed academically. I was like, I am repeating cycles of trauma. I can't Mm. do this. (laughs) Like this is not this is not the thing. I think those are high turnover jobs. Yeah. I you know, they have to be. And some people stay in them for like 15, 20 years. And I could see a path toward like, you know, financial and personal stability through kind of moving in that world. But I really um I really it wasn't it wasn't it. It wasn't the thing. And I wanted to leave California. And I wasn't, I just was starting to feel very unfinished. Um, and when that has happened for me in the past, it's either like time to move across the country or time to go back to school. And so I just did both. (laughs) I was like, we're moving to Georgia. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that I had this feeling of something undone. Um, I also think like every time I went back to school, my, um, institutional literacy, just got so much higher that it became a different experience every time. And so going back to get a PhD was the most professional just like time I, or feeling that I had while being a student. Um, but you know, also why did I get a PhD? Oh, I don't know. I'm, uh, I have like a core wound of, uh, you know, un- <laughs> like absolutely like unworthiness. So yeah. I had to go prove myself again. Oh, really? I had to go get some more validation. I guess. <laughs> 
Um, which like jokes on me because that's not a good reason to get a PhD. <laughs> like that is not what they are selling yeah. here. It's a lot of work for it. <laughs> I know. Almost, I know. Really, yeah, really. It's maybe yeah. more than just being a writer in general, right? <laughs> I mean, at least when you're rejected as a writer, you know, they don't do it to your face. They just, <laughs> they just give you an automatic no. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Block's World. Yeah. So, um, I loved this poetry collection. Um, it's a book about, uh, digital tech and nature, life, I guess, <laughs> in general, uh, family, self, and I think above all, maybe the inability to know any of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and maybe to talk about the book, it's best to start with form. Sure, um, yeah. yeah, there's, there's four kinds of poem sets that have multiple poems with that name and then there's what i'll call a bunch of free-floating poems that are related though um and so the poem sets there's um and it's i like the way the table of contents is laid out because it's so interesting to look at and then you learn how to read it but there's like the carrot sets there's the cluster analyses the downloads uh, and then the blocks world poems um, which is where the obviously the title of the book comes from. Um, and then those free-floating poems I mentioned, they do speak to each other and the other poems. Some are long, some are short. Before I get too involved in unpacking this book with you, I wonder if you would tell me about the process of writing the poems for each of the sets or finding out that certain poems were a set or whichever way that that happened. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to read the book and so carefully. You know, I was just talking about how um, important sort of like emotionally and feeling like a writer it has been to have folks or to, you know, <laughs> until now, really, it's been just um, just close friends kind of witnessing and, and attending. And um, yeah, thank you so much for such a for seeing the book. So yeah. clearly, no, my too. pleasure. Yeah. I do. I really do love the book. That's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so the kind of the process for writing the poems. Yeah, so I I had been really, really interested in this idea of like long poems that are woven together and interspersed as a way of sort of creating um, a scaffolding or some kind of like substructure for, for a book. Um, thinking about, you know, what happens to seriality when it interrupts itself, you know, when multiple series are sort of layering on top of each other. So that was, that was an interest. Um, but then the actual, but the, the actual sort of series of poems you're talking about, um, the, the sort of the carrot poems, I think of them as kind of like bracket poems or they it actually started as, as rounded parentheses, but then I kind of liked the look of the sharper carrots a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit, it's, it's a, a symbol that's used more often in computer coding. Yes. So that was how that kind of came up there. Um, but yeah, that was actually, those are the first poems that got written in the book and they were a totally different project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. It was, it, those are sort of the, those poems are um, concerned more with like the natural world and um, trying to communicate extra humanly and sort of across boundaries of species and kingdom. Um, but so I thought, I thought that that was the project. I thought that that was what I was working on and that was going to be 
the long poem that sort of wove its way around these other poems. Um, that didn't end up happening. Yeah. <laughs> They're there in a different capacity. Um, but then the the Blocks World poem, the poem that ended up sort of giving the giving the collection its title, was sort of the second series that I understood and was working on. Um, and the form changed. Originally, it was like a, you know, within the Blocks World sequence, it's a dialogue between a writer and a computer who are trying mm -hmm. to work together to write a poem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so that, you know, that form went through a lot of different iterations before the shape that you see in the book. And actually, the shape that you see in the book only exists in the book because it's um, it's determined by the physical constraints of a physical book. So instead yeah. of kind of these, um, I had these like three columns where, you know, on one side was the human, one side was the computer, and in the middle was the poem. And that then that didn't work on a page. So, you know, in the same way that you work within the limits of a word processing program, or you work within the limits of the digital in order to write with a computer, you also have to, you know, make poetry within the confines of the medium that you've chosen to present it in. So if you want to write it as a book, you have to think about how that's going to show up on the page. So I thought the book designer, um, Aidan Fitzgerald, did a really good job of figuring out how to retain the sense of conversation mm -hmm. and the sense of result when you actually do see the poems emerging from the dialogue um, through through the book design process. Yeah, it's an intuitive layout for that poem. Yeah, yeah. It works really well for um, the conversation. Those poems, so I mean, I like, as I mentioned, I, I love the book. Those poems are so inventive. I feel like I've never read a few poems like that. I'm talking about the the Blocks World ones. They're um, funny, oddly, and also like mind puzzles in a way, and also little forays into like theory, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but they're so unique. I, um, it's like, a, yeah, I mean, it feels like you found a form unto itself in a way. Um, what about the um, the downloads? I think oh, I mentioned yeah. those as well. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, the downloads and the cluster analysis sequence, there are, they come out of each other. Um, so I think there's one moment right at the end of the book where they're like, there's a little bit of a rupture. You know, there's one poem in between a, a cluster analysis and a, and a download. Um, and yeah, so with those two, with those two sequences, um, really the, the method came first and then, and then the titles, and then I kind of figured out how they came together. Um, so I was, you know, the project was really also kind of my, <laughs> where I was in my, my journey with my family mm -hmm. and thinking about them and trying to understand them better and trying to heal our relationships from where, where we were when I was writing this book. Um, and so one of the, I was, I was also really interested in, um, collaborating with non-human actors to, to drive the composition process, to really kind of drag some of these insights out of me mm -hmm. as like a therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. And so with, um, yeah, with the cluster analysis sequence, I would, it was really a going back and forth between, um, using not chat GPT, a, pre a predecessor GPT three, actually. Um, and I would feed sort of like key lines from 
the book or from the project already into a text generator Mm -hmm. and kind of just shake it like a magic eight ball over and over Mm -hmm. again until it started producing some answers Mm -hmm. and then using those sort of often mysterious or nonsensical language prompts as then the material that I would use to create the downloads, um, which I would (laughs) run through another non-human process of a tarot spread Mm. that I developed for the book in order to generate insights about a family member. Um, And so a lot of the imagery that's coming from there is auto-generated, but seen almost as like a you know, the way that you would you would use some sort of divination tool, like a really, really simple one in order to kind of reframe, kind of <laughs> move you past or outside of, of your blocks or your assumptions in order to get you thinking about things differently, which is something that tarot does too. Um, and so, yeah, the cluster analysis is the sort of computerized version of that um, and named for, you know, an actual sort of computer-based data analysis tool or system and then the downloads (laughs) which were really i mean it's a term that folks use in um in intuitive work as well as uh as in as digital work you know like a download is something that you pull from you know from the from the internet a download is something you also kind of like reach up and if your mind is open you can like pull it from from universal consciousness or something um yeah, so that was that was how those poems kind of came together. And they really, because the cluster analysis is pulling from the existing poems, I was really interested to see how they started to kind of bring the bring the manuscript into conversation with itself. They almost feel like double haikus, like haiku foils or something. Ooh, yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I hadn't thought of it exactly that way. like haiku, but yeah. because it's like the three lines on it's one side lines, and yeah. then kind of like an inverse kind of like dialectic i guess on the on the input output um yeah kind of along those lines like it feels like you've made very unique forms you know which each of these sets is there a part of you that wants to keep playing with those forms and see what content they pull out or does it feel like okay i did those and now i kind of want to move on you know i i was really interested in those forms i think almost because they were um so process oriented. Um, and that, you know, I said, I kind of have a background in art history and that's thinking about sort of like mid-century seriality, this, um, conceptual idea of process being kind of paramount and making it visible, um, is something that's been really an important idea for me. And so, yeah, I think the, the form is sort of like, not necessarily the answer to the question, but it's sort of the, um, the shape of the question I was trying to identify in the project. Mm. And I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to keep up with them. It's interesting. You're talking about the conversation element of the, the blocks world poems. And, um, a friend gave me a Christian hockey book the other day, ventricle, where he's doing this translation project in collaboration with a long deceased, um, poet Georg Trockel, and he also has these moments where he's imagining a dialogue with this deceased poet whose poems he's translating sort of inventively. And I was, you know, I hadn't read the book before writing Block's World, but reading it afterwards, I was like, it's, it's similar, just yeah. this, this attitude toward the interlocutor. Um, 
Yeah, sorry, I forget where I was going with that. No, one. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of ways that the forms you play with could manifest. In yeah. Other, yeah. Who yeah, knows? Yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll see. So let's talk about. I'm calling them free floating poems. I don't know. I don't know what how you think of them or. If yeah, the one offs. Yeah, That's what I call them in my head. Yeah. So I think I don't know if I mentioned before that I immediately think of the mountain and the mm. sign of self, which are I think two of the longer poems. Yeah. These are about um, a father, uh, a sister, and yourself. There's also a, uh, one to the mother. It's a little shorter. Um, <laughs> I would describe these poems as reckonings. Mm. It, it, they feel like there's, you can f- just, f- I'm going to say iceberg, but it's like, I don't know, it's a little cheesy or obvious. You can just feel the iceberg under them. Mm. They feel like it's a buildup of time and emotional energy that's resulted with what's coming on the page. Yeah. And I think that the way you approach the page um, in these poems, it makes it so that you can feel that iceberg though you can't necessarily identify it i think that's an idea i can unpack a little bit more later and maybe i'll I'll get to it but in general you use a lot of direct address in the book um we'll discuss that a little bit more in a minute um it's like it's so funny to talk about this book you have to like layer (laughs) it's kind of like (laughs) gotta weave it itself um But let's start with just kind of the the longer poems and some of the shorter poems and how they became in conversation with these other sets of books and then how they became threaded in with all the other things you were threaded into. So I guess just let's stick with process and organization for now. But Mm -hmm. how did these poems develop and then find their way into this glue, I guess, uh, in the book? Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, I've been really interested in long poems um, as a reader and as a writer, just maybe the older I get, (laughs) I'm like, wow, this thing just keep going. What if poems (laughs) just kept going? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, the mountain was just one of those like symbols that kept coming up for me and I wasn't really sure what to make of it, but I had started kind of writing the, um, and it's very repetitive for a long poem. It's very repetitive. Um, but I had started writing, kind of getting that rhythm before I understood what it was about. Mm. And I think before I understood that it was about my dad, I thought it was just about making art um, and the difficulty and the like futility and inevitability of that whole process. As I said, I've tried to quit many times. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, kind of understanding how that symbol attached to my dad was really came through the process of writing it. Um I found that writing longer poems also, especially the mountain, which is, you know, uses this kind of refrain of the mountain, the mountain over and over again, um, recording myself and listening to parts and listening back, um, became a really important part of just like keeping track of it, just kind of, um, actually, you know, kind of defamiliarizing (laughs) this, like it turns into this scroll, you know, when you're writing on a Mm -hmm. digital space and you're just like, um, you know, it becomes more like a, like a feed than a page oriented thing. So anyway, like moving it into different, into different media was really helpful for that writing process. Um, and it took a long time, I think between the, the first, even just like, I remember sitting in a car with my siblings, um, on a road trip one winter and we were in Southern California on like three ninety five, um, 
this beautiful road and just like looking at these mountains <laughs> everywhere. And I was like, Oh my God, it's the mountain. It's mm-hmm. the mountain. And then like trying to figure out what I, what did I mean by that? You know, mm-hmm. that was kind of mm-hmm. the process of the poem and then figuring out that it does involve and the, that my life in art does, does involve my dad. Who's um, who wouldn't put himself in that constellation. Um, yeah. It was just, I think a gift of the process. Mm-hmm. Was, was that an, a poem that came earlier in the process of the book? Yeah, it was. And did yeah. it create almost a form for those other direct address poems? I wonder if you were like, this poem is doing something that I can harness. It's not going to be the same mm. form, but yeah. let's do one for sister. Let's do one for, for mom. Did it kind of happen like that? Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I realized like, oh, this is the project. Um which is something that, you know, as someone who's interested in experimenting with form and repetition and some, some conceptual stuff, um, I think for a long time in those, like, you know, those unpublished, those unpublishable years, I was very, um, very concerned with like poems as experiments and poems as intellectual exercises and hadn't really let them sink very deep into my own sort of emotional life. Um, even though they're very, even though poetry is very important to me and very, very central to my emotional life, my own writing wasn't necessarily like, you know, delving that deeply into, it wasn't doing the sort of psychological, uh, reckoning or repair work that, um, that I think it needed to do in order to, to be a little bit more powerful, honestly. So I think when the mountain sort of attached to my dad and was starting, I was like, oh, right. It's my family. <laughs> it's funny how those projects, you know, it started out like, oh, I think this is a this is a book about like the natural world. Oops, it's about computers and the oops, it's about my dad, you yeah, know. <laughs> right. uh-huh. Yeah. So then I was like, all right, sisters up next, you know. <laughs> so let's talk about the direct address then. Yeah, yeah. I do. So there's, I mean, there's those three poems, but there's a lot of direct address in the book. I mean, the second poem, second person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking to you, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I was just, would you talk about direct address in your poems, like how it works for you as the writer and how you it works for the reader or at least how how you hope it works for the reader? Yeah. Um, this actually, to give credit to a teacher, um, I took a workshop with Lyra Van Cleef Stefanen at uh, Cornell when I was doing my MFA there. And she was the first person who really talked about um the you and it's the lyric you, Mm -hmm. um, and what an odd convention it was. Um, and she, she, you know, challenged us to, um, to speak to somebody specific in our, in our poetry and to see what happens when you do that. And that was a really, that was a really formative idea for me, I think. And so, um, addressing a specific person (laughs) is, I think something that I'm always sort of trying to understand i'm always trying to understand the the voice and its its audience i guess it's you know at whom is this aimed um i think that that creates for a richer or i hope that creates for a richer reading experience um not because the reader is equivalent to the you but because the reader is invited to complete the listening portion of like a really intimate conversation. Um, and so, yeah, the you is always very specific, um, in order to 
to focus the poem and to keep the poem honest, I think in a way. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not abstract. <laughs> that second person is conceptual, but it's, it's also, it's, it's someone. Yeah. yeah. I think direct address work in general, which I do find mm -hmm. myself very drawn, very drawn yeah, to yeah. and prioritize in my own work, oddly, even when it's not direct address. But I think what it is, it's like, the illusion of non-mediation like mm -hmm. that there isn't something between you and and the like the page isn't there yeah like it you always know it's there i mm -hmm. mean the artifice is always there but it feels like it disappears for a minute yeah. it, does that is that like i guess intimacy in yeah. a way is that for you what it helps you unlock for yourself like i, I guess and for the reader i think that it, yeah i think that's right i think um you know, another idea that I like about poetry is this, like, the impossible utterance, you know, say what you absolutely can't say. Mm. Um, and say it in a way that I'm not actually sure the person I'm addressing is going to understand or receive it perfectly. You know, it isn't, it isn't, you know, looking them in the eye and holding their hand and speaking in a very forthright manner. It's, it's something else, but it's my version of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think part of the work that the, the book wants to do and the direct address is one of the methods it's using to do that is um, also, you know, not just trying to, to reach the person signified by the you, but also to, to do so in a way that's important to me, the writer, the poet, who's like, I want you to know me too. And this is how I think and speak. And it's an act of intimacy and of deep trust to um, address one of those impossible utterances to an actual person. Right. <laughs> You're like, hey, I hope you read this, you know, <laughs> or don't read yeah. this, depending on. Yeah. Please don't, but I kind of hope you do. But I don't. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even in the process of writing it, because I think it does that sort of reckoning or reparative work, um, it can kind of achieve it yeah. anyway, especially yeah. when like a reader activates it with their attention. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I guess kind of sticking on the personal, you know, part in the book, like, obviously, there's a speaker there. But as you're saying, like, there's, you know, these pieces of you. right? These yeah, yeah. And one thing that I thought about when I was reading your work is just a really great balance of that personal with poetic distance. Like, I guess, would you talk a bit about the speaker of your poems to you? Like, how you blend the specific real and the evocative mm. like it feels personal but it feels distant i guess we'll call that artful but <laughs> you know that's artful can mean a lot of things but i guess yeah if you would just maybe talk into that idea of keeping the distance to create to elevate it i guess yeah mm. how do you how do you do that or negotiate that in your process I think I probably am coming from a greater distance and working to get closer. Mm. And um, so I think the distance is, I mean, it's, it's, it's material, it's malleable. It's something you can you negotiate with um, because, you know, even if I'm speaking really directly to like my mom, which I, <laughs> which I do in the poem, in the book, um, you know, I still have to be like interested in the poem on its own terms too. Um, and still, you know, there's maybe it's drafting, but it's probably even more so in revision when you just, yeah. you know, there's a moment where like 
your mom's not in the room for a minute and you're just crafting. (laughs) But then you go back to, you know, actually the direct address and, and trying to manufacture, manufacture intimacy, but not in like, um, it's really, it's just, you're trying to, to represent a non-physical thing. Um, yeah. So it's not, it's not manufacturing so much as it is sort of, um, I don't know, like remediating something Mm. like moving it into the genre of poetry instead of the genre of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I think I'm coming from, um, instead of like, uh, having to work to, to establish distance, I think I have to kind of, uh, yeah, work harder to get closer. We've kind of talked about this a couple times um, in the way the book works together. Mm-hmm. But another thing I think of in the book is kind of, I'm going to call it pattern and mutation. Mm-hmm. Like you set a pattern and then you mutate it in these different ways. Like the blocks world does that maybe the most overtly. Yeah. Um, you know, the recy- like the digital recycling and refiltering through the human and like computer brains. But also like from the first to the second poem, you, like you take the last line of the first poem and then like it augments and becomes the first line of the poem, second person, which we mentioned. And the way that the patterns are set and then mutate is kind of, I think, in a way, the point of the book, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like there is to me a very great harmony between form and content. So I wonder if you would talk about the idea of like maybe mutation or starting a pattern and breaking it, um, how it helps create your work or maybe pulls you or maybe what pulls you to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is um, aligned with an interest in seriality and an interest in repetition and um, iteration and you know, with, as with, you know, artists who, who make their work by, you know, do like photocopying, you know, running off these like automated endless copies. It gets interesting when something inserts itself into that digital process, when something interrupts it, when something changes. Um, I think a lot about the, the role of mutation as you, as you put it so nicely in long poems too, how do you keep an interest and how do you keep momentum when you're, when you're talking for a long time, (laughs) you know, when you're, when you're expecting someone to listen to you for a long time, how do you continue to give the reader's attention, something new to grasp, something new to kind of be interested in? Um, yeah, it's like enrichment, you know, (laughs) it's like, and now we have to change things. I thought of like, um, like using different gears kind of in, Mm -hmm. in some of the long poems too, you know, you'll have like a form on one section that kind of mutates into a different form or, um, yeah. Or even like repeating, repeating phrases or repeating, um, images across poems. It, I'm, I'm hoping as a reader, it kind of like, it just, it's a something you recognize and so something you affix to, right? When we look at paintings, the first thing we see are faces um, because that's just humans. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're drawn to ourselves. And so anything that kind of like um, would, would help a human attention sort of latch on like a repetition or a repeated image. Um, and every time you repeat something, you're mutating it anyway, yes. right? So it's always happening in a different context. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of as a as a reader responsive move, um, I think I think repetition, iteration, mutation within those 
patterns um, has been a really interesting way to kind of bring a bring a book into a sense of wholeness too. So it both keeps your attention through slight difference, but then also creates a sense of unity across individual poems. Yeah. And I, I, a while, I don't remember when it was, maybe it was 20, 30 minutes ago or 10 or five. I have no idea. Oh gosh, I know. Um, <laughs> but I mentioned there's something I wanted to unpack more about kind of like your line work or maybe just this, the style itself. And you mentioned the repetition at times, like the anaphora seemed yeah. to be kind of generative for you. When I yeah. think about your words on the page or just the words, I, I think of um, aphorism. There's an aphoristic quality to parts of the poems or certain kinds of poems you use um, clear questions and direct statements that f to me feel very alive along living side by side or near somewhere in proximity to poetic imagery. And then just the general maneuvers you make, particularly in the long ones, which yeah. require on more maneuvers. Um, and the pages feel, you know, like open and tight at once. You feel it, it feels as a reader, it feels very free. It doesn't seem that you're bound by conventional rules and you're not afraid to just say the fucking thing, mm -hmm. which is something I really appreciate. But when you do say the fucking thing, it doesn't feel like, it feels like it's very controlled and it feels like <laughs> understated. And so it, 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 you know, like the poems themselves, they, it, it contains multitudes, <laughs> multitudes, I suppose. Um, but I guess if you would, you know, maybe tell me about how you think about the line and think about stanza and think about white space and page breaks and lyricism, yeah. poetry in general, all of yeah. it. Like, yeah. how, how do you kind of see the language of your work and, and how it's yeah. on the page? Um well, if I can pick up on the the aphorism sort of observation too, again, it has it has ties to art. I loved Jenny Holzer for so long, and there was um actually like an, I used to work at this museum in Western Massachusetts, uh, Mass Mocha, Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, and they had this huge installation of her words just kind of scrolling across this warehouse space. It was great, and I I love her aphorisms, even the brutal ones, um, and I. I don't know, like a, imagining like a, a book or a poem as an experience. There's this one moment I was at Crystal Bridges in Arkansas and there's this courtyard that's all Jenny Holzer and the pavers on the, on the floor are, you know, carved with these um, increasingly violent aphorisms, right? Like the first closer to the door, it's like raise boys and girls the same. The next <laughs> one, you know, then at the back, it's like, there's someone, someone out there wants to cut a hole in you and fuck you in it, buddy. You know, and it, and it was just Jesus. like, yeah, no, mm -hmm. increasing, increasingly sort of um, aware and responding yeah. to the violence of the world. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, by myself and just sort of like wandering around thinking in this courtyard and a group of, um, of museum visitors come in and uh, they're just looking for a place to sit down. You can tell. <laughs> and they're like, oh, isn't this nice? This is art too. And then they get toward the back of the courtyard, you know, where things get really rough mm. and that's where the benches are. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to rest, you also have to survive this language. And I could just see them making this decision. You know, they're looking at the bench and seeing this language, this like really aggressive, these truisms and, um, deciding to ignore it and just sit on it anyway because their feet were tired mm. so i really i've always been interested in the role of of the declarative statement mm. and how you can sometimes use that mode to actually say the truth right say the fucking thing and 
also how certainty can be used to to hide what you don't know mm. and how it, it can also be very provisional. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that, yeah, if that really gets at language and stuff, but yeah. I think it does. And I wonder if you would maybe add into that, um, like the breaks and the maneuvers, mm. um, what feels, um, right to you, you know, like you have short lines, you have long lines, uh, yeah. sometimes in the same poem. Um, what's the feeling or the logic or whatever you use yeah. <laughs> to yeah. Yeah. feel out how the poem becomes spaced, mm. um, you know, yeah. for greater effect? I love a long line. Um, I really do. I think it challenges the relationship between poetry and prose in a really just marvelous way. You know, something <clears throat> something that um, though it exists on the page, it, it also points to the arbitrariness of physical parameters you know mm -hmm. for poetry you see some like may may burst and Brugge books that are just this um really really wide format so that you know the lines can really stretch out and then other you know sort of more traditionally formatted books you see these really long lines turn into like paragraphs mm -hmm. um which of course you know those are prose terms like paragraph right. and sentence and yeah. um but yeah, so I think it's it's part of syntactical play too to really kind of push toward that that right hand margin in order to, um, yeah, in order to have enough room to do something syntactically there. And then of course you have different affordances when you're using shorter lines too. Mm -hmm. um, you can break things more interestingly um, with regards to sort of like meaning on the word level. Uh, and I think it's really nice, especially in a long poem and in a book, I was really interested in multiple types of textures and multiple types of encounters with, with poetry, um, as a way of keeping the reader interested. Maybe, maybe it's like tap dancing too wildly. There's like too many textures in this book. They're like, look at me, look, at, there's a long line, there's a short line. But, um, I really, yeah, I really enjoy that as a reader and was really interested in sort of wanting to experiment with, um with different textures as a writer too. And as far as, you know, a lot of the long poems, they're broken page to page too. Um, I wanted them to have a shape for the page and so that I could evaluate their strength on sort of like a unit basis, you know, but then also it's, I think, I hope it's nice for the reader because it is demanding to have a long poem. Um, especially if it's emotionally intense, especially if it's a little abstract, um, especially if it's both. Yeah. And so kind of providing landings or benches to sit on, even if they're inscribed with something horrible, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. at least there's a little, there's a little respite or a chance to sit. You can decide to sit down. Yeah. yeah. You know, thinking about the mountain and how the different parts are on the different pages, kind of, as you said, um, in a way for you, does it help compose? I guess, I guess, did you, did you compose it like that? Even in like a word doc, like, does it help yeah. you compose? Cause it helps you think of each part as its own poem, I guess, in a way. For that one. Yeah. 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 That is, it, I did end up and you know, lots of different versions. Um, but yeah, there were always separate pages. Yeah. Which is interesting when it's coming out in a literary journal soon, the most recent issue of Epic has the mountain in it, cool. which is amazing. Cause I never thought <laughs> so hard to place long poems um but for the purposes of the literary journal those page breaks are gone hmm. um yeah and i'm really interested to see, to see yeah, what happens yeah yeah um cool so 
this is the first book of the new small press great place books yeah um and you've told me about struggles with other books <laughs> that you've done <laughs> that you haven't been yeah. able to find a place for um would you tell me i guess the story of this book finding a home with yeah. a great place and how Absolutely. it converged to be their first title yeah it was um it was really unexpected and it was really great timing I had been sending blocks rolled around for a couple of years and, you know, it, editing it, revising it as it went, but again, trying to get better about publishing before I feel fully ready. Um, and, you know, it had gotten some good looks It had been a finalist um, for a couple of contests, including the national poetry series. So I knew there was something there, mm -hmm. you know, it just wasn't, hadn't found, hadn't found its home yet. Um, but I, I was going, I was, I had already started to rip out all of the circuitry and the, like all the computer stuff. I was like, all right, this isn't work. Like I was, I was on my way to making a new book. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is, well, <laughs> this one's not going to go either uh -huh. and moving on. And, um, then yeah, a friend let me know that he'd seen folks online trying to get like a new press together and they were having some trouble finding like a poetry book and this friend is a really a really dear friend and a really wonderful supporter of my work which is again another plug for like show your friends your writing <laughs> right. um and he was like can i send them can i send them something and i was like yeah sure what the hell you know <laughs> it's like this one's headed for the junkyard anyway yeah. take it um and yeah, after years of not getting anything really, um, like two days later, got a phone call that was like, we love it. We want it. And wow. it was, um, yeah. And it was Alex and Emily who are, are behind great place books and who are, yeah, the, the minds and the, and the hands behind this yeah. too. They've put so much work into this press. Um, and it was a really, really wonderful, a really healing moment for me as a writer for this book, I think to, um, yeah, to find, to find those readers who were going to, to sort of help it move into the next phase of its, mm -hmm. of its public life. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you. And, yeah, I'm... It, and it's something that I, you know, as a publisher myself now, and I, I actually, I just interviewed Emily and I, I, I oh, probably yeah, cool. may have said the same thing <laughs> to her. And sorry to any listeners. Who, it'll, <laughs> it'll, it, it mutates. Repetition <laughs> yeah, yeah, always yeah, changes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, is that since I've become a publisher, it's just blowing my mind how many mm. amazing manuscripts are out there that are not yep. finding homes because there's not yeah. that many indie presses out there or indie yeah. presses maybe who know how to navigate getting a book in front of, you know, at least some people. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, right. It's, it's wild for me to think about this book not being published when I think about like how amazing I think it is formally I mean part of it's a bias because I mean technology and nature and family and I mean that's you know that's my jam yeah. but um <laughs> but just as a book and I mean I even told you know even the Blackwell poems it's like that's a that's a form I've never seen like it's it's crazy for me to think that this book would not have had a publisher potentially yeah. if Great Place hadn't just popped up and your friend hadn't gotten it to him and there's so many stories like that Yes. I yeah. mean, I have stories yeah. like that, even with my small press. Like, there's some Absolutely. books I take them. Like, would anyone else have taken it? Like, I, like why? How? I, anyway, and the amount of books yeah. I'm not aware of Absolutely. that people are having trouble to place right now. That even yeah. if I wanted to, you know, yeah. I couldn't 
get out because you know there's only so much <laughs> there's only so much it's it's truly it's truly wild i guess this is it my is. any it listeners is. please start another indie press so you can get oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. world out there you know um, yeah that's that's so true i think that's both really it's really exciting on good days it's really exciting yeah. on bad days it's really dispiriting <laughs> mm. you know it's it's but it's absolutely true and i think um because of the numbers of, of just wonderful work that's out there, as opposed to, you know, the narrowness of the funnel through which we all have to move in order to, to reach a readership. Um, yeah, it's humbling. I think there's a, a lot of luck that goes into it. There's a lot of arbitrariness to the process just in terms of like whose desk manuscripts end up on, how they get there. You know, it's um, so it, it's a very humbling process, but I feel very, very lucky that that the right people found mm. the book before. Before and, I jumped it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe it's just that you tried to stop. You couldn't stop. I can relate exactly. to that. Exactly. Yeah. Again. Yeah. You tried to play stuff. You couldn't play stuff. You weren't going to stop because you tried. Right. Yeah. And then it's just a, maybe it's just, I mean, you just keep, <laughs> if you can't stop, you keep doing it. And then yep. like, like you said, you got to show people and you yeah. don't know how any of it is going to happen, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or if, but I think eventually, right. Yeah. I mean, it's all like you you can Hopefully. just you're just gonna get that good, right? Like you can't be ignored it. So. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, and I didn't realize that like the trying is the process too, mm -hmm. right? When I was in MFA and just not publishing or not trying, um, not sending stuff out, not even trying to learn how to do that. Um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't participating, yeah. <laughs> and so there is something kind of horrific about the fact that participation in the community means kind of getting rejected a bunch of times. You know, like what kind of what kind of community is that really? But that's why it's so important to share, to share stuff in a way that's, um, that isn't gatekept. And that means that it may not be as public or as wide reaching. Um, but also I think, yeah, creating kind of, um, more local communities of sharing work is, has been just a really important revelation for me too. And it works out in, in this bigger publishing way, because if I hadn't shared my work with my friend, you wouldn't know that this was a good fit. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, okay. So, it, so the book's been done a while, but you did work on it again, obviously to publish it. What have yeah. you been, what else, <laughs> what else is laying around, um, that you're trying to place or what are you working on now? Or are you more concerned with just doing new stuff? Yeah, no, I, um, I have, I have a poetry project that is yet to take shape. It's kind of, Yeah. It's a little amorphous at this point. Um, we'll see what happens with that one. Yeah. And then, yeah, <laughs> stay tuned 10 years from now. You may hear from <laughs> me again. But then, uh, yeah, the, the sort of the project that, that feels like I have a direction or feels like, you know, there's some substance there is actually a nonfiction project right now. Um, taking a different, a different sort of genre approach, you know, genre-based approach to um, also thinking through some automation things. Um, it's about work. I've had a lot of jobs, <laughs> um, but also the relationship between, um, but my relationship to work mm. and the difference between work and labor too. Mm. And so the nonfiction project, um, you know, starts kind of moves through these individual jobs that I've had, you know, starts with like my first job at McDonald's and like kind ah. of cycles through these other things, Mine but also too. <laughs> really, Oh no way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Writing centers and McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if go. there's like a connection there. There must be. Yeah. Um, 
but then kind of ultimately ending with this, um, trying to understand this experience that I had a few years, actually, while I was working on Blocks World, um, I had a side job in grad school as a chatbot operator. Mm. So I'd monitor chatbots to make sure, or a chatbot particularly, to make sure that she was behaving herself <laughs> and being a good customer service representative. Um, and long story short, we ended up unionizing. Mm. Um, there were like 50 to 70 operators at any given time, um, all remote. And yeah, it's it was a process of... Um, like forging community, even in this like remote digital space that I found like incredibly interesting, but also incredibly challenging. (laughs) Um, So thinking through some of these like individualistic sort of lessons you learn about, about work or about, about worth and value and um, responsibility. And then what that means when in the context of collective action, (laughs) like collective organizing, um, I can't decide whether to, do kind of an auto theory thing with it right now. Right now it's just straight memoir, um, not bringing in any other texts, um, just kind of trying to get the facts straight for myself. Um, but we'll see, we'll see what direction it ends up going in. All right. That was my conversation with Emma Catherine Perry. You can go read one of her poems, the sign of the self in Autofocus's fall 2023 issue, which came out yesterday at autofocuslit.com slash fall 2023. And after you read that poem, you should check out the book, Blocks World. That's out now with Great Place Books. If you go to their website, greatplacebooks.com, they have a lot of really good classes too. I just saw a memoir class launch with John Cotter previous guest of this podcast in fact and you can check out all of autofocus's books at autofocuslit.com books which is also where you can find that t-shirt i mentioned at the beginning of the show and if you're still listening and want to review the show on whatever app you're using that's always appreciated Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.